Daily United Methodist Podcast for Sunday, November 14, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there are a few nouns in this world that have reached the height of simultaneously also becoming verbs, and Google is one of those, right? Just Google it, something that we say all the time, and rightly so. Of the top search engines, Google has a 93% market share worldwide, with the next most used search engine being Bing, which clocks in at a meager meager 3%. It's incredible. Uh, In fact, there are so many people just Googling it that the Google servers are processing 40,000 queries per second. Let that sink in for a moment. That's 3.5 billion searches per day on Google. Not only that, but every year, 16 to 20% of all search inquiries are new, meaning that all over the world, people are constantly coming up with new questions to Google. Now, following the advice of Ted Lasso, I decided to be a little curious this week and not judgmental. So I was wondering what it was that people are most asking Google how to do. Uh, You know, aside from like where to go, different places, how do you get to different locations. Uh, And between July and September of this year, this is what I found. These were the most asked questions on Google. Number one, what to watch. This is far and away the most asked question. Uh, It was asked two times more than the next uh, question on the list. And to be honest, I don't think I've ever considered Googling what should I watch. I have all kinds of ideas already. But for the sake of research, I Googled this week, what should I watch? And dang, there's all kinds of great movies and TV shows that they put up that are popular, that are trending. No wonder it's the uh, number one searched question. Next was, uh, how do I delete and then insert your least popular app, the one that you want to get rid of, right? Whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, Gmail, those were the highest uh, search questions on how to delete. Or how to take a screenshot uh, was another highly uh, queried search. Uh, Mac users tend to be a little more confused about this than Windows users, meaning how do I delete, uh, take a screenshot with my Mac came up far more often than on my Windows. Um, how to lose weight fast was up there, which you got to love the specifics, right? Not just how to lose weight, but how to lose weight fast by like, you know, tomorrow night when I go out on this date. Uh, the quick answer is it doesn't happen fast, uh, but I'm sure you can find that out by Googling it. Uh, how to tie a tie was Googled quite a bit. Simple solution, of course, would be just to wear Aloha shirts all the time, like I had Totally legitimate option, Uh, but evidently, folks need to be still taught how to do this. I want to thank my dad for teaching me how to tie a tie, even though I never wear one anymore, but I appreciate that. Uh, How to download a YouTube video, not just watch one online, but download it to your computer so that you can use it for whatever purposes you you need to or work with it on your own. By the way, I have a great software program for this. If you need help, talk to me after the service. I'll hook you up. How long do I need to boil eggs? Oops, there we go. How long to boil eggs? Now, I've discovered one great solution is to get an Instant Pot, and uh, you get that little thing in the bottom, you put your 12 eggs in, one cup of water, turn it on for five minutes, you're good to go. Um, 
Here's another question, how to solve a Rubik's Cube. When I was in elementary school, the Rubik's Cube just came out, I actually bought a book and I memorized all the different patterns and when I was a kid, you could mix it all up, give it to me, I could have it back to you. Today, I've forgotten all of that, so I would be Googling as well how to solve a Rubik's Cube. Um, another one, how to draw and insert whatever creature, character, item you want to learn how to draw. Google will give you step-by-steps on how to do that. Or how to earn money online. Everybody needs a little bit more money, I guess, right? Especially uh, during COVID. It's probably got Googled a lot more. How to register for a COVID vaccine is another one. Um, and again, this is a worldwide search. And then finally, in the top 100 searches, the last most asked how-to question was, how do I back up my iPhone? Uh, again, Apple people like myself tend to, I guess, have bigger problems uh, than Windows people in figuring that stuff out. Well, welcome to the first of a two-week sermon series that I'm calling Prayerables. And these are two weeks, two short parables about prayers. I was going to call it Prayer Parables, and then this Tuesday at staff meeting, Pastor John goes, <laughs> it's kind of like a prayerable. And I'm like, I love it. So I changed my title. Thank you, Pastor John. Right. Why parables on prayer? Well, I think prayer is something that all of us do at one time or another, and if we're honest, we would probably admit that either we're not very good at it, or we know there's a lot more we need to learn and grow in our prayer life. And so I thought these two weeks, as we get ready for um, the start of Advent or the coming of the Christmas season, would be a wonderful time to brush up on our understanding of prayer as we get ready for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Now, we could just, you know, Google how to pray, and you get quite a few responses to that query. And that's basically what the disciples did in today's scripture reading from Luke chapter 11. Uh, Cordy started at verse 5. We're going to pick up at verse 1. If you want to follow along with me, take out your Bible or your Bible app, uh, open up your cell phone, and if you have the church app, we have a Bible link on there as well. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So before Google, there was Jesus, and the disciples want to know, Lord, how do we pray? Which is a reasonable question, don't you think? But let's look at where this falls in relationship to the disciples' journey. Well, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls his 12 disciples to follow him. And he then proceeds to preach and teach and heal for the next five chapters. And then in chapter 10, Jesus now has uh, about 70 close followers, and he's getting ready to do this uh, massive outreach ministry. And so he sends his 70 followers off, sort of Noah-like, two by two in pairs to go to all the towns that he will eventually come to, to sort of, you know, prepare the way for his coming. And then one chapter later, we're in chapter 11, which is where our reading for today. The disciples have come back from their uh, two-by-two ministry, and now they ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. Kind of think they maybe should have asked that question before they went out, right, in two-by-two to the towns, Uh, or maybe they just realized, they thought they knew what prayer was, and when they come back from doing the uh, uh, boots-on-the-ground ministry, so to speak, they realize, boy, there's there's still a lot we need to learn. Verses 2 to 4. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive our sins, for we ourselves 
forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us into the time of trial. Okay, so this is the Lord's Prayer, right? But it's not exactly the words that we pray that we just prayed when, when uh, Don was leading us, right? It, it's, it's a little bit shorter, actually quite a bit shorter. Uh, but now without getting too deep into the specifics of Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, we could say that Luke gives us sort of the Cliff's Notes virgin, version of the Lord's Prayer, right? One of the scholars I read this week said that maybe Jesus' shorter version is a way of answering disciples' question, teach us how to pray, without really answering disciples' question, meaning, you know, I know what you're asking, so I'm going to give you a quick answer, but there's so much more than just the words I'm about to say. Because he immediately follows it up with, a, uh, with this, follows up this shortened prayer with a parable on prayer, which I'm calling a prayerable. Verses 5 and 6. And Jesus said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and, and you go to him at midnight and you say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. Okay, so there's a lot going on in these two verses, and uh, let's take them one by one. I love how Richard Vinson uh, lays out the players in today's story. Uh, he mentions this in his Smythe and Helwe's commentary on Luke. He says, you got the guest, that's the person that just arrives to this village in the middle of the night. You have the host, the person to whom the guest comes to visit, and then you have the neighbor, and that's the guy whom the host wakes up in the middle of the night. All right, so you're with me here? Right, we got our guest, our host, and our neighbor. Now, on to the specific, specifics. First of all, the host calls both the guest and the neighbor friend. He says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine has just arrived. Now, we have to assume that the, the uh, host is being honest here, that he truly sees both individuals as genuine friends of his. And we're not dealing with, you know, relatives, business associates, or even unacquainted neighbors. No, they're genuinely friends. Second, we know that the guest arrives very, very late. I mean, so late that it's midnight by the time that the host gets over to the neighbor's house. Now, it's always great having friends come over, right? You know, but the timing here puts, uh, puts the host in a bit of a bind, right? He would have liked, I'm sure, to have vacuumed the house, cleaned up the bathroom, changed the sheets on the guest bed, stocked up the pantry, right? But evidently, this was an unexpected visit, and he didn't have time for any of that. Now, the key issue here is hospitality. And what was expected uh, for guests and hosts in the ancient Near East? Well, hospitality was huge back in Jesus' day. Richard Vincent says that in Jesus' Palestinian culture, when a guest arrived, three things were required that were always expected by a guest. One, the host must greet the guest with kisses. Two, the host must wash the guest's feet because they've gotten dirty from a long travel. And three, the guests must be fed. No exceptions. All three rules had to happen anytime someone traveled to someone else. Now, in addition, whether the guest was hungry or not, it was expected that he or she would then eat whatever was set before them. I, they must have learned that from my mother. Uh, but it was socially acceptable for guests to come over at any time. There was no such thing as a bad time to visit in the ancient Near East. But here's the real kicker. Guests weren't just considered guests of the one home they came to, but guests of the entire community. So 
If that individual uh, didn't have all the things he or she needed, then the rest of the community was uh, on the hook, so to speak, to help out, to pitch in, to make sure that hospitality was met. Okay, so now we know that the guest caught the host at one of those, uh, what should we say, old Mother Hubbard times, right? You know what I'm talking about? Your, your kids have been eating you out of house and home or your grandkids. Yeah, you've been meeting to run down to Costco and to restock, but you just haven't gotten around to driving all the way down to Avenue L. And suddenly your friend arrives and now you're stuck and I have nothing to set before him, the host tells the neighbor. But why does he ask for three loaves of bread? That seems like a curious uh, request, doesn't it? Why not cinnamon rolls? Cinnamon rolls always go over well when you have uh, guests over, or, uh, or a leg of lamb, or a nice homemade apple pie. Oh, and can you throw in maybe a half gallon of vanilla ice cream, because you've got to have both of those, right? Well, for a number of reasons. For starters, in a Galilean village like Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, they had very simple homes that were usually one or maybe two rooms. The women would bake bread together in ovens in common courtyards. They didn't bake it in their own homes. So all of the women in the village would know who has a lot of bread that day and who might have some left over when it gets close to the evening time. Uh, the host would have gone directly to that neighbor that they knew was the most well-stocked based on uh, the amount of bread that was being baked that morning. Third, I discovered a wonderful insight from Kenneth Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And Bailey says, it's not even the bread that's going to be the main dish here for the guest. He writes, bread is not the meal. Bread is the knife, fork, and spoon by which the meal is eaten. The different items of the meal are, are, are common, are in common dishes. Each person has a loaf of bread in front of them, and he or she breaks off a bite-sized piece, dips it into the common dish, and then puts the entire sop into his mouth, then starts with a fresh piece of bread and repeats the process. So we're talking family style, uh, dishes in the middle, everyone's got their own loaf of bread, and they're using that to eat what's been set before them. That's how important bread was to a Palestinian community. It was essential for any hosts. And by asking for three, we can assume, oh, there are three travelers that have come to the house. Well, up until this point, everyone hearing Jesus' parable would have completely understood what Jesus was saying up until this point. They all would have done that. They, at one point, they would have been, at one time or another, the host, the guest, or the neighbor that was put into a bind needing to be asked to bail out a friend. Now, maybe not at midnight, uh, but they all would have experienced each of those three roles. But here is where things get interesting. Verse 7. And the neighbor answers from within, do not bother me. The door's already been locked. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, this is what would have been absolutely shocking to Jesus' hearers back in the day. I mean, given how virtually, uh, how vitally important hospitality is to Middle Eastern communities, no one in their right minds would have ever uttered such words ever. I mean, to do so would be to commit social suicide. Everyone in the village would have found out about it. Your re reputation would be ruined. You'd probably have to move out of town, enter the equivalent of a Palestinian witness protection plan, have your identity changed, and hope that your, re your reputation doesn't somehow follow you into your new life. I mean, hospitality was that important. Now, maybe the neighbor here was being sarcastic. 
right? That he was mumbling or grumbling as friends sometimes do with one another, giving the host a hard time, but knowing full well that he would actually get up and do what was asked of him all along. Like, come on, Pastor John, give me a break. Now of all times, I mean, you know I'm in bed, don't you? My, my kids are snuggled up with me. Seriously, you're asking me now? Come on, man. I can't believe you're going to make me get up and get you bread right at this hour, right? And in actuality, it seems to be exactly what Jesus knew would happen all along. Verse 8. I tell you, says Jesus, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. Now, many commentators have noted the key word here in verse 8 is the one that uh, the New Revised Standard translates as persistence. Well, the actual Greek word is anideia, and it's the only place in the entire Bible that that one word is used. Right here, Luke chapter 11, verse 8. This is the only story that it's used, anideia. Now, many scholars say a more appropriate translation would be avoidance of shame or shamelessness rather than persistence. It literally means a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. And because of the subject-verb confusion, it's not really clear who the he here is referring to, whether it's the host or the neighbor. Instead of talking about the host's persistence, we probably, scholars say, we should be lauding the neighbor's quest to avoid shame. So notice, then, that to prove that all this was done with willingness and honor and respect uh, rather than done begrudgingly, Jesus says that the neighbor will give the host whatever he needs, whatever he needs. Now, if the neighbor was annoyed, he'd be like, here's your three loaves of bread and leave me alone. No, no, no. It doesn't say he gives him three loaves of bread. It says that the neighbor will give the host, what? Whatever he needs, which could have been three loaves of bread and a little bit more food, maybe even a bottle of wine. Who knows? Whatever, whatever the host needed the neighbor would give him. Now, I want us to hold on to this understanding of an idea being shamelessness and not persistence as we finish out the verses for this reading, verses 9 to 13. So I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who searches finds, everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asked for a fish, would give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, would give a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, traditionally, this parable and the follow-up verses by Jesus have been used to teach us that we have to be, what, persistent in our prayers, right? You've heard that before, haven't you? Right, that we have to be willing to ask and search and knock on the doors of heaven uh, day after day after day with our prayers. But if, if this parable really were about persistence, then logically, Jesus would be telling us we have to keep pestering God for whatever it is we wanted, even if God tells us no. Like, seriously, is that what Jesus is saying? That, that we're, we got to keep at it until we get God to change God's mind? I mean, is that what we want to be teaching our children? Actually, some of our children and grandchildren could probably teach a master class in how to pester us until you get what it is that they want, right? Robert Capon, in his book, Parables of Grace, writes this. 
In fact, persistence doesn't win anywhere near enough to be held up as the precondition of God answering our prayers. And I will not let you hand me the cheap, cruel bromide that when persistence doesn't win, it probably wasn't real persistence. Tell that to someone who asked and sought and knocked until her knuckles bled for a child who eventually died of leukemia anyway. Seven years ago, my mom died of cancer. She had smoked most of her life. She said she started uh, smoking in junior high with the boys to, to be cool. Uh, she quit 20 years before her death. It was 10 years after she quit that her first of three bouts of lung cancer hit. And it was a tough, tough struggle. Nine years after that first bout, her third and final one hit. The day before Labor Day, my dad called me to say that my mom's health had taken a turn for the worse. I knew that she was going through treatment, but I didn't realize it had gotten this serious. So I flew from Hawaii to Northern Virginia. I spent five days with my mom before she died, and I was by her bedside every day. <laughs> Anyone want to guess how persistent we were in praying? Persistent prayers that started for healing, eventually turned into persistent prayers for relief, from the pain and suffering she had, and that God would welcome her into paradise. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? From your own faith journeys with people that you love. Now, if we take anidea to mean shamelessness, and we apply it not to the host, but to the neighbor, then it's not our persistence that is in effect when we go to God in prayer. It's God's shamelessness that trumps everything. And I know this is a dramatic departure from the way this parable is usually talked about. So I'm going to give you a moment to let that sink in. Think of it this way. In this parable, it's as if Jesus is saying, okay, if you need something as a host, and you go to your neighbor at midnight when he's already asleep in bed and the door are locked and his children are out like a light, he's still going to give it to you because he's your neighbor and he's a man or woman of integrity and they won't go against that. But there's more. Jesus says, the God to whom you pray is also a God of integrity who will live up to that integrity as well. So if you're confident that your neighbor will give you whatever it is to meet your needs, how much more should you be that God will supply whatever it is that you need? Because surely God is more trustworthy than even the most trustworthy neighbor. But here's the key. Just like the host in this parable, we come to God, the neighbor, knowing that he is our only hope, that we are dead without him, that we have no other alternatives. And God does his best work when we recognize that we are completely lost without God. And God is shameless enough to give us whatever it is that we need. Now, please note, what we need may not be what we want and what we ask for. Okay, so let's go back to the start of this chapter, right? The disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was common for rabbis and teachers to have a set method of praying, a certain mantra that, that each one would pray, and that's how their followers would be known. And evidently, John the Baptist had his own prayer mantra. But Jesus, the prayer that Jesus taught, wasn't intended to be some kind of secret magic formula of just 
the only words to say in prayer. I mean, we've already noted that Matthew and Luke have different compilations of what the words to the Lord's Prayer are anyway. I don't think Jesus was trying to give his disciples, okay, these are the only words you should pray. No, Jesus wanted to connect his disciples to God. He wanted to put them into a relationship to the one who loves them and created them and redeems them. So, Jesus tells them a parable. It's a simple story with a deep meaning, a story about a host and a guest and a neighbor who could be counted on even in the middle of the night. Likewise, Jesus said, we have a heavenly father who can be counted on to give us whatever it is that we need most guaranteed. Not because God wants to see if we really care about what we're asking for and if we'll ask over and over again and then maybe God will give it to us or because we're supposed to bother God until God eventually caves in as if God doesn't have his own plans for our lives and for this world. No, this is all about how deeply God loves us that we may come to understand and enter into that amazing, loving, grace-filled relationship. It's been said over and over again, right, but I have to repeat it, that God loves us unconditionally, and most of all, God wants to give himself to us in the form of Jesus, who was, according to the Gospel of John, the bread of life. Three loaves of bread of life and so much more, right? The bread that we need in order to do everything else that we want to in this world, if only we will seek him and ask and recognize that he is all that we have. Maybe it's been a while since you've come to God at midnight with that deep need recognizing that all other sources of outcome have been exhausted and God is the only one who could possibly fill this need. Maybe you were just on your knees this morning with one of those types of needs. Maybe you've never really considered that God is the only one who can fulfill whatever it is that your life is missing. So I invite you, friends, today to come before the Lord like that, to open your heart to the one who created you, that God loves you and God is waiting for you to ask and seek and knock on his door and he will not turn you away. You don't have to be worried about catching God asleep or God wanting some peace and quiet. God is always available and ready to open his loving arms for us. No matter how often we seek or ask or knock, over and over again, God is ready to give us whatever it is we need most. And like I said before, what we need most may not always be what we're asking for, what we want. It's a different topic for a different time. But the truth is, when it comes to prayer, Jesus says, don't don't get caught up in the words or where you have to be or how you have to hold your hands or if you're looking up or looking down. No, it's all about relationships. It's all about the neighbor, God, the one who loves you and will give you whatever it is you need most, a relationship built on love and trust and grace. What what an incredible gift. I don't know if you'll find that if you Google how to pray, but but that's the truth. And all God's people said, Amen. amen and amen.